I, uh, I have just a couple of quick announcements for you here. One is that uh, we have uh, two Christmas Eve services, uh, but we do not have a uh, Christmas Day service. Uh, you might call us a slacker for that, but we don't care. Um, that, that's, uh, so Christmas Eve, two services, uh, 3 p.m. and 4.30 p.m. Uh, there's going to be a few things that are happening with that. We've got a uh, hot chocolate bar, uh, a photo booth, uh, music, uh, candlelight service, uh, that type of stuff. We'll have child care for kids under two years old. Um, one of the things that we're asking is that if you uh, come here to Outward and you're, and you're planning to come um, on Christmas Eve, uh, so to either the 3 p.m. Over the, over the 4.30 p.m. service, we're just asking that if you could go online and RSVP for the service that you're planning to go to. And uh, you can do that through our, our RSVP app, and I think you can go to outwardchristmas.com, actually, and, and that'll take you directly to that. Um, and uh, the RSVP does not necessarily save you a seat. Um, what it does is it tells us how many seats to put out, and, uh, but I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll be uh, okay with two services. Um, that would be so helpful. Uh, New Year's Day, there will be one, uh, uh, one hour service uh, for the whole family at 10 a.m., so uh, no child care that day, and so we'll try to make it uh, fun uh, for the kids uh, and for you uh, while you try to restrain your children. And so... Um, That'll be, that'll be exciting. Um, so then, and then lastly, uh, baptisms on January 15th. We know of um, uh, uh, several of you, or a few at least, that um, have uh, come to faith recently, uh, or maybe you've never been baptized before, and so we want to invite you to be a part of that. We know that some of you um, have already talked to us about that, and so we are encouraging you to uh, come and be a part of that. There should be, uh, I believe, some type of a, just a baptism informational kind of a class on, on January 8th, uh, I believe is what I heard, but it's not on my announcement, so I can't confirm that for sure, but we will let you know. Uh, if you could just let us know about that, that would be fantastic, and we'll get you plugged in. You can do that through your Connect card. You can email us. You can come talk to me after the service. Talk to folks at Connect Central. That would be uh, so fantastic. So uh, first of all, I'm incredibly impressed that you're even here. So um, this is amazing that we have uh, this many folks who've come out on a Sunday morning after it snowed. I know how difficult it is for Oregonians to actually drive in snow and uh, so forth. So um, I'm, I'm happy that you're here. Um, listen, I, I have something special. Um, I've never done this before. And um, so I actually have uh, my grandmother here. And uh, she is 93 years old. And she has a, uh, a great story. And so I, I wanted to have her share uh, this morning just a little bit. So I'm going to actually help her. Would you welcome her to the stage here? You don't have to sit. I just thought I'd make it more comfortable for you. You don't want to be comfortable? Okay, all right, all right, that's fine, that's fine. Okay, and I'm going to turn this on. I think, you know how to use one of these, right? Okay, there you go, awesome, perfect. You think you do, awesome. So, whoops, I think that was my microphone. I got to figure out how to use one of these. I'll, I'll do that, you're not supposed to sit on that, I think. So, perfect, awesome. I feel like I'm lounging a little bit too much. So, Grandma, you've been my grandma for how many years now? Probably. Mm, about 40 years, about 40 I think. 40 years, that's <laughs> right, so. that's right. So we've known each other for, for quite some time. But So tell it, first of all, tell us um, what happened uh, to your, your arm here recently. Oh, I have, wish I had an interesting story to tell you, but the, the truth is 
I was out exercising, walking around on the sidewalk and stubbed my toe. So I fell on my arm and broke my shoulder. So, but I didn't want to keep that from coming out here. So I just gritted my teeth and got on the plane and came anyway. <laughs> okay, my grandma just broke her shoulder. If you can't come to church with it, after it snows, you are a slacker, all right? She broke her shoulder, got on a flight from Texas, uh, uh, flew all the way here. And, um, and then, so then you're staying here, and then what are you doing on Christmas Day? Christmas Day, we're leaving. I am leaving to go back to the Dominican Republic to uh, help to host a group of people that are coming down to do missionary work for the week, uh, Christmas week, yeah. Okay, so not only did you fly to, to, to Salem, Oregon from, from Texas, but now you're actually going to go to uh, the Dominican Republic. You're going to fly there on Christmas Day, and then you're going to work. Uh, as, as a, essentially as a missionary, you're going to be uh, cooking food for the groups that come down and things like that. Is that right? Yes, I have to go back to work because I'm not retired yet. <laughs> but I'm going to retire one of these days, but not until I get old. <laughs> so, so you've been, so how, how many years have you actually been doing uh, ministry for? May 1st of 2017, I will complete 70 years since we got on the plane and left the U.S. for the Dominican Republic with a husband and two babies. That's, that's 70, 70 years of not just loving Jesus, but loving Jesus and serving him through being a missionary and, and things of that nature. And Amen. Yeah. And so you've been, been doing that for 70 years now. You've been in the Dominican Republic uh, you were in Cuba before Castro kicked out the missionaries. Yes. And uh, you were, how long were you in Cuba for, do you remember? Three and a half years. Three and a half years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you guys were in Mexico for a number of years. 30 years. 30 years in mm-hmm. Mexico. Mm-hmm. And um, you've just been all over the place and still on mission uh, for Jesus. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> tell me, can you tell me, like a little bit uh, just about your testimony, your story as to how all this got started. Well, I was born and raised in Minnesota and uh, not in a Christian home. But at the age of um, 16, I came to know Jesus through my sister who had come to know Jesus before that. Uh, She was going to Bible school in Minneapolis, and so I wanted to get out of my hometown, and this was before I was saved, and so I wanted to go to a big city and have a great time going to dances and bars and all that sort of thing, (laughs) have fun. Uh, But the only person I knew in the city was my sister, and the only place she went to was to church. (laughs) So I went to church Sunday night when I got off work, and then Thursday night when when I got off work. And that's what happened. One, one month after I arrived, I accepted Christ as my Savior. That's, that, that's awesome. And so, so then you and my, my, gra- my grandpa, your husband, Zeril, um, <laughs> and Zeril is his name, and uh, he actually grew up in Salem here, yes. went to North Salem High School and all, and all that. But you guys met, and then how did it happen that you guys ended up, um, that you ended up going to the mission field? 
while we were at Bible school, we had a lot of missionaries coming down, uh, coming into chapel and sharing their life and their testimony and the need on the mission field. And so my husband was challenged, especially with the phrase that said, uh, it's not fair for anybody to hear the gospel twice before everyone had at least a chance to hear it once. <laughs> that's what challenged him. That's what, that's what challenged him. And so you guys, like, just went to the mission field. And what, what yes. was that like, being on the mission field? Is, how old were you when, you when you did that? I was married at 19, at 21. Let me see. No. 23, I think. Yes, I was 23 when we landed on the mission field with two babies one year apart, 12 months apart. One was two, and the other was one. <laughs> yes, we went directly to the mission field from Bible school. Yeah, yeah. And so how, how, uh, how easy was that to be serving Jesus in that type of environment? Well, for me, it was almost like going back home because I was used to living on the farm mm -hmm. with no running water, mm -hmm. with an outhouse for a toilet, yeah. Um, no electricity. Yeah. Which is what I had when I got to the Dominican. And so it really wasn't that big a change for me. It was more for my husband. He didn't like that very well. <laughs> he wasn't used to that. So Grandpa was a slacker, but you, uh, <laughs> you were pretty tough. Right? I wouldn't say he was a slacker, but he did, he did complain a little He's bit. He's gone now. So we... <laughs> He's gone now, so we can make fun of him. But, um, <laughs> but so you were kind of used to difficulty. You were telling me a story about the other day that I had never heard before when we were kind of um, lamenting so much snow that had fallen in, in Salem. Tell us uh, your, uh, your, your story about going, going to school in the snow on the sleigh that you were telling me the other day. Well, in Minnesota, you know, it gets cold. Yeah. And... One, I remember once, after a blizzard, that it was 30 below zero, and it was time to go to school. But we were 10 in our family, 10 kids. So about four or five or six of us were in grade school at the same time. But it, we just had a one-room schoolhouse, so we were all made in the same room. But to get to school, we had to go in a sled, um, a big wagon that had um, what do you call them? Runners skis, on the bottom? Skis on the bottom. Yeah. Yes. And we had horses to pull the wagon. But the horses even couldn't get through the big drifts. And so my brothers had to get out, my older brothers who were out of school by that time, they had to get out and take a shovel and shovel the roads so the horses could get through. So you can imagine the drifts were pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> so... Next time you complain about the snow in Salem, <laughs> my grandmother, I mean, this is not like uphill both ways through the snow. This is like in a sleigh, like having to shovel the snow for the horses and all of that. It was, it was an amazing story and, and pretty incredible. What do you think, uh, what kind of advice do you have for people that want to be on mission for Jesus? What, what do you think you would say to them about what it, what it takes uh, to serve Jesus the way that you have for the last 70 years? Well, you know, Satan is very strong, and he tries to tell us that that is not the thing to do these days. Stay home, 
go to school, get a university education, earn lots of money, have big cars and a big house. I've never had any of that, but I've never, ever wished that I did. I never wished I could go back and do it over, mm. change it some way. Mm. It takes perseverance, it takes dedication, it takes um, a desire to continue on no matter what the problem is. Uh, God provides every need. I've had no salary for the last 70 years. I have trusted God to provide the need. And my husband and I both did. And then when he died in 1996, um, I continued to serve him. And God has provided every need. As you see, I'm not necessarily dressed in rags. <laughs> God provided and provided well. I've never gone without a meal. I've had plenty to eat. Too much, in fact. So, uh, God bless. It takes dedication. It takes a desire to serve and to continue on in spite of difficulties because Satan is there fighting all the way, but God is powerful, more powerful than Satan is. Mm, that's cool. Can we give her a hand? You okay? No stuff. Yeah. Okay. Nice. There you go. Okay. Guys, thanks for thanks for listening and being attentive. I really appreciate uh, having Grandma up here. I um, it's amazing when you look at uh, her story and what um, and what she's been through uh, over the years as to. How God has, has used her. There's so many of us here that have talked about serving Jesus or we're, we're, we're trying to get through what, whatever that looks like and we're, we're trying to decide, okay, what all do I need to sacrifice? And you look at somebody uh, like my grandmother and you just go like, that is, that's in, almost insanity to think that somebody would give up everything, give up a salary, give up all of these comforts and to, to follow her husband uh, to the Dominican Republic and then all over, uh, you know, uh, the world, in essence, and, and serve Jesus like that. Like, what would that take? What would that take? What type of commitment to God would that take? Is that just for some people, or is that for uh, all of us in life? I think um, as we look towards Christmas here, uh, coming up in the next few days, um, one of the things that we, um, we want to do is that we want to look expectantly uh, toward Christmas, and I think that as, uh, as, I, as I think about Christmas, um, I think things can become very convoluted in our minds as to what Christmas is really for, what's it really about, and what does it mean for us uh, in the coming days. Because I, and, and I want to make something clear that Christmas isn't the only time to be thinking about Jesus, but Christmas is a fantastic time to really celebrate Jesus in a way that we don't normally do with our culture, because our culture is celebrating Jesus whether they want to or not, whether they think they are or not, they're celebrating Jesus. And so how do we become people that are excited about it? How do we become people that have um, an experience with God that essentially allows us to be people who are, who are going to be about Jesus in and through uh, Christmas. I think about the uh, Santa Claus uh, song, you know, like, 
Uh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. And then it, it goes into this idea of like he, he is making a list and he is checking it twice and he is going to find out. He is going to get you if you are naughty. He is going to get you. And I don't know why we sing this creepy song with our kids, all right, all right, because he, he sees you when you're sleeping. He is a stalker, all right? This guy is a class A uh, stalker. Um, he, he's an offender on some level, and um, he knows when you're awake. I mean, he's not just kind of seeing you, but he's watching you. He's making sure that you do not screw up, otherwise you are getting a lump of coal, all right? And this is... In essence, in some ways, how we look at Christmas, it's kind of this uh, fun thing that we do. We, we, you know, there's materialism, and we all know that it's not really about, you know, the gifts that we get, but the gifts that we give. But really, materialism is really found in the idea of even the gifts that we give, because I'm, I'm a parent of uh, four kids, and they... Um, just love lots of expensive things. And as a parent, I can find myself thinking, I really want to provide for my kids as though I'm kind of providing something great for them when in reality I'm just setting them up for failure in life as I give them everything that their heart desires. And so we have this skewed view of Christmas that Santa's going to get us, and really it's about what I get, and so I better be good. And really our view of Jesus and why he came can be very similar can be very similar. As we look at Jesus and we say, you know, uh, we, we kind of minimize his role, and, it, and it's about this story, but really, we don't really understand the story that Jesus' birth really explains. What is that story? What is that really about? And we, we get a clue of that from Matthew chapter 1. If I can find Matthew in my Bible. There we go. Matthew chapter 1. In verse... Uh, 18, it says this, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So what, what's, what's going on there? Before they came together, before Jesus and, uh, I'm sorry, before Mary and uh, Joseph had come together, meaning before they had actually been married, before they had engaged in intimacy, before that took place, um, uh, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. But Joseph doesn't know this. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and, willing to put, uh, and, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph, it, it, here's this guy, and he's, he's just like, man, uh, this gal that I'm engaged to, she's slept with someone else. Like, I don't believe this story about this, this holy ghost who came to her and told her that she should do this. And so I'm, I'm going to divorce. Uh, I'm, I'm going uh, yeah, to divorce to get out of engagement at that point. I'm going to divorce this, uh, this gal, and I don't want to put her to shame. And so he's, he's choosing to do this. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is a, it's kind of a pretty uh, amazing passage that there's this, 
there's this stuff that's happening. Here you have Jesus. He's the son of God. He's being born to this woman. And what's happening is scandal. It's just scandalous. It's just like, man, I thought that she messed around with someone else, and now I don't really want to uh, marry this gal, but what, what the heck is going on? And then all of a sudden, um, he gets this message saying that, that your, your wife, your, uh, the gal that you're engaged to, she will bear a son, and you will call his name. This is what you're going to do, Joseph. You're going to call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And right from the very beginning, what you see right there is that this birth is not an ordinary birth. That this birth is something different. It's going to save people. It's not going to get people. This birth, this child, is actually going to save people. What Jesus says in, in Luke 24 is something very interesting. After he is crucified and raised um, from the grave, it says he's walking on this road uh, to Emmaus. And he comes up behind two disciples, and the disciples don't recognize him. He's been resurrected from the grave. Somehow God keeps him from recognizing uh, uh, who Jesus is. And so he begins uh, to talk to them. And it, and it says this, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near. This is chapter 24, I should have told you, verse 15. Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And they're just sitting there just going, what, what are you talking about? What, what, what are you, what are you, why are you asking us this question? Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only person, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? I mean, think about this. It's the Son of God. It's the guy who was crucified, and he's saying, what are you talking about? What do you mean? What, what, what's the deal? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped. But we had hoped. But we had hoped. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. He's dead. He's dead, dead. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were, uh, were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now what that just said is this. It said you can have a lot of hopes in Jesus. Like these guys did. Like we had hoped 
that he was going to come in the way that we thought he was going to. And we had hoped that this is what it was going to be. And we had hoped. And so we have a lot of ideas as to what Jesus is or what he's like or what he came to do. We had hoped that this is what was going to take place. Like this is, this is what I thought the meaning of Christmas was. We had hoped. And Jesus says this. If you're really going to understand me, if you're really going to understand my life, if you're going to understand the most important event in all of history, then you have to start at the beginning. But it's not the beginning of his birth. It's not the beginning of his birth. It's the beginning of time. See, you know, uh, when Donald Trump becomes president, if, if, if that happens, considering everything that's, that's taking place, when he becomes president, what's going to happen is that on the History Channel and things like that, there's going to be documentaries, perhaps, about him and about his life. And there are already some that have happened. It happens every time we elect a new president or every time we lose a president. Is that what takes place is that we begin to talk about their life. And really, the only place that they begin is that Barack Obama was born in this place and at this time. Or Ronald Reagan was born here at this time in this place. But Jesus is the only one who you can say, like, if you want to understand this person in history, if you want to understand who he is, you have to go back, not just to, their, to his birth, but you have to go to the very beginning. You have to go to the start of life. You have to go to the start of all of creation. You have to go to the very beginning. And if you don't do that, you have a huge misunderstanding. See, this is what, this is what happens. I, I'm in the middle of remodeling my home. And uh, I know I've been doing this for a while. And uh, some of you are like, you're still doing this, huh? Like, what's going on with you? You know, it's, it's going to be a little while. And, um, but I'm in, in the middle of remodeling my home. But in order to have, like, this kind of understanding of my house... Like, I don't go back just to the beginning of when I began to remodel. I have to go back to 1910 when my house was built. Because my house, when it was built in 1910, was a pretty good house. Like, it, it, was, it was a, a, a really good house. It, it, you know, it, it stood for this long. But then over the years, what took place is that different people began to add things to it. And, they began, and it, it began to become a, a little bit of a mess. And so you had all of these people that, that were adding new wiring. And that, that was a, a real blessing to the home, all right? Thank you very little for your help, sir, on that. And then there was uh, new plumbing. And if you know anything about plumbing, you know, there's PVC connected to ABS, which is connected to galvanized pipe, and then you have PEX pipe, and then you have CPVC, and then you have some galvanized, and then you have some copper, and then you have all of this mess. It's just this conglomeration. But in order to understand all of this, you have to go back to the very beginning in order to make it to the end, you have to have this overall plan of what should be and what shouldn't be, of what should be there and what should not be there, and what should be a part of this remodel. And really, when you look at the scriptures as a whole, what, um, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, like, you can't start in the middle of this project you can't start in the middle of this thing and, and understand what's taking place. You have to look at God's plan in order to really get Christmas. In order to get Christmas, in order to really understand what took place, you have to start at the very beginning. And what is the very beginning? The very beginning is, is complicated, 
but it's simple, and I want to repeat it for you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God is intricately involved in his work. God comes, and he creates out of nothing, ex nihilo. He creates out of nothing. He creates this world. He creates uh, everything that you and I can see, and he creates everything good, and he's intricately involved with that. But not just that. He creates man and woman. He creates humanity. And what happens in, in this is this great care that he takes with Adam and Eve is that he's, he's created them. And it says in uh, chapter 3, verse 8 of Genesis, it says that he was walking in the cool of the garden. And what that says to me is this, is that Adam and Eve were used to walking in the garden with God, and they understood what it sounded like when God walked through the garden with them. So God not just creates uh, good things, but he creates this relationship that he has with these people in this fellowship that he has with them. But what takes place in uh, those days is this, is that God says there's one tree that you can't eat of it. If you eat of it, you are going to die. You are going to die. And there's going to be a big problem. But Satan has a different narrative. Satan says this. Satan says, uh, you should eat of it. It is good. It will, <laughs> it will taste great. And you will be like God. And what that does throughout all of creation is this, is that it changes everything from being trust God and walk with him in relationship to trust no one, isolate yourself, make the decision for yourself. Do whatever you want. And I don't know if you've, you've seen some of those stories. I was thinking about Back to the Future. I think it, it, maybe it was the third one when uh, Michael J. Fox comes back to his hometown and it's way in the future and I think Biff took over and it's just like there's crime and there's newspapers rolling in the street and all of this stuff. And that's what the picture that you get out of Genesis is, is that life just begins to unravel and Cain kills Abel and then there's all kinds of stuff. There's, there's anger and, and, and strife and what takes place there is absolute hell on earth. That happens because two people decided that they were going to do whatever they wanted. But the interesting thing about this is this, is that at the same time that God pronounces judgment, he also pronounces that there will be salvation. He announces something that seems cryptic. He says in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And this is God talking to the snake. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what's that saying there? It's saying this. It's saying, I know that you just jacked everything up. And I know that this just took place, Adam and Eve. And humanity is all reading this and just saying, no, no, no. But God is saying, this is not the last word. This is not the last word because I am going to bring about something. There is going to be an offspring. There is going to be a seed. There is going to be someone who comes and you're going to bruise his heel. You are, you are going to uh, bruise his heel, but the head of Satan will be crushed. And then God does something incredibly beautiful. In chapter 3, verse 21, it says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
Think about the difference here. Santa is making a list, and he is checking it twice, and he is going to find out if you are naughty or nice. Because he's coming to town, and you had better watch out. God does this. God sees sin. And in the same, almost in the same breath of pronouncing judgment, he's pronouncing salvation. He's saying, I am going to send someone, the one, the seed, and they are going to do something amazing. And then instead of just simply punishing them, because they are punished, they are put outside of the garden, instead of just that, he says, but let's clothe your nakedness. But let's make things right. And then you go on throughout the Old Testament, and you see how God calls to himself Abraham, Abram at the time. He calls to himself this guy named Abram. He calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm, and I'm going to cause you to be uh, this, this person. And from you, all the families of the world will be blessed. And so he creates this nation, this nation of Israel. And Abraham is somebody, he just, he trusts God. He kind of flubs a couple times. He passes his wife off as his sister uh, a couple of times. And she gets taken into the king's palace. And, and, and bad things could have happened. But here's this guy who has done some bad things. He's a human, and yet he trusts God. He trusts God, and he has faith in him, and he, he trusts him, and, he, and he's, he's saying, I, I want to walk with you. I want to give you everything. I want to I do this. And, and God confirms to him, and he says, from you, all the families of the world are going to be blessed through your offspring, singular, through the person that comes through you. And what comes out of Abraham? The nation of Israel. The nation of Israel comes out. And what happens uh, to Israel is this, that Israel is in Egypt because their family experienced famine. And so Israel comes uh, to Egypt because they need food. And so they stay in Israel. And at first, they're highly valued and people like them. But then what happens after that is that people start to get upset with them. And then there's a new pharaoh in town, and that pharaoh says, I don't like these people because they're going to become more numerous than us. Let's enslave them. And so they're in slavery, and it's, and it's horrific. They're, they're, they're being brutalized. And so what happens in, in this is that God calls Moses, and he says, I want you to lead my people out, and I want you to lead them out of here. And I want you to take them out of Egypt. And so what happens is this, is that God sends these ten plagues and he shows Pharaoh that I am God and you are not and your gods are nothing. And so Pharaoh finally lets them go and they're saved. But what you find is this, is that it's, 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 a, it's another incredibly fascinating piece to the story. Oftentimes we think of God and we think of his ten commandments. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And we think... In some ways, we say, you know, God is similar to this idea of morality that we have with Santa Claus, right? Like, if I do these things, he is going to get me. He is making a list, and he is marking these things down. And if I don't do this, but here is the grace of God again. 
Remember God clothing Adam and Eve, and he gives them, he gives them new clothes, and he says, I know that you came to this realization by eating this, this fruit of this tree that I told you not to. I know that you damaged yourself and that you brought yourself into this situation, but I'm going to clothe you. And then here's another situation where they had been in slavery. And he says this in Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. And so we're into the Ten Commandments. But what is God doing here? What's God doing? He's already saved his people. See, what we think is we think that God somehow works the way that Santa does. That if I do good for God, that somehow God is going to repay me for that. That God is going to allow me to be, uh, be saved by him. And so if I, if I do good for him, then he'll do good for me. But here's the way that it actually goes. Is that God is the one who saves. He saves first. And then what he does is he says, now go and live the way that I'm asking you to live. God saves us first, and then he says, now I want you to live out of that. I want you to live out of that. And when you see my plan, when you see the overall plan of everything that I'm doing, when you start at the beginning and you start at, this, at the very top and you see that this is who I am and this is who I've been and this is what I'm like, that I am the God who saves people in the midst of their sin and I use people in horrific situations and I draw them out of that and I save them for myself so that I can have relationship with them. When you see that, then you're beginning to get the Christmas story in its fullness. Because if it's just baby Jesus, Santa Claus, and materialism and all of that, then you have missed the heart of the gospel. You have missed God's, God's overarching plan, and you're not going to know where to go next. And so what Matthew rightly says here is that he will save his people from their sins. And, and, I, and I just, real quick, want to just walk through what kind, of God, what kind of people God uses to carry out his plan. What I didn't read you is the, the genealogy just before this in this book. And what's interesting about the genealogy, a genealogy is this person begat that person. This person had this son or this daughter or whatever. And that's how we came, came to Jesus. But what Matthew does in his gospel is this, is that he wants you to know the reality of the story, what really took place, what really happened. And so he mentions a, a couple of names he says, uh, chapter 2, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Zerah by Tamar. Now, why is that important? Because Tamar dressed up like a prostitute, and she slept with her father-in-law. And what happened as a result of that was absolute sin. 
and, and, and just completely sinful. God uses sexual sinners in his story. God uses sexual sinners in his story and names them. He's not afraid of what's happening here. The whole thing about the gospel is that from the beginning of time, God has always been saving sinners. And even in the midst of this story, I'm not making this up. Like he used Tamar. And guess what else he did? And, and it goes on. And, and, uh, it, and then it mentions uh, uh, the father of Herzon. And Herzon, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of, I'm not even going to try to read all these names. Nahashan, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who's Rahab? A prostitute. What's the deal with prostitution, right? It's a problem, right? No, God uses Rahab, a prostitute, both to save his people and for his lineage to flow through. And then it goes on in verse, uh, uh, verse 6, And Jesse, the father of David, uh, uh, the, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Stop right there for a second. Who was David's wife? It was Bathsheba. And so Matthew could have said this. He could have said, uh, and uh, David, the wife, uh, uh, and, I'm sorry, and David was the father of Solomon by his wife, Bathsheba. But instead of saying Bathsheba, he says, by the wife of Uriah. And who's Uriah? See, David is this guy. He's, he's this king. He's the greatest king in Israel besides Jesus himself. And what does God do? God uses David mightily. He's incredible. But David stays home one day from war. And he gets bored. And he looks over the wall and he sees this woman. And this woman is, is, is bathing. She's doing something. <clears throat> Who knows <clears throat> what's actually taking place. But he sees her. He says, I, I want her. What's a king do? What do people do when the king says, I want her? They say, I'll go get her. And he brings her, and what does she say? She says, you're the king. I, I got to do what you want. So David takes a wife that's not his own. And you know what happens in, in those moments? Is that his, that's his buddy Uriah's wife. He took his buddy's wife. And not just anybody, it's a buddy that's actually at war. So here this guy is. He's fighting for his country. And David, who is, is essentially, I mean, like, this is one of the scummiest moves that you could possibly imagine. Can you imagine if one of our politicians today did something on this level? He would be castigated in the news media. So here's David. He takes uh, Bathsheba into his home. He gets her pregnant. Then he realizes that she's pregnant. And so he says, okay, we got to do something about this. So he calls Uriah home. He says, Uriah, uh, leave the battle. Go home, like hang out with your wife a little bit. You've been gone for a while. Uriah says, far be it from me to go like hang out with my wife when my buddies are in battle. Uriah is a better man than David is by a long shot. And then what happens is this. is like David's like, crud, this guy won't do what I want him to do. And so he says, uh, tell you what, yeah, go on back to the war. And then he, he gives orders to have Uriah killed in battle. He said, let, let Uriah go out to the front, and then you guys pull back from him and let him die. So he has Uriah killed. What, what in the world is Matthew doing here? Matthew is saying that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, like this adulterous relationship. It is in and through this that, that God works 
Like amazingly, like if you don't understand God's overarching theme and the fact that God uses sexual sinners to do his work, God uses people who have horrific paths. God uses people who have just been on the outs. And they look at God and they say, you know what? I think you're like Santa. You're going to get me. I know that you know the things that I've been doing. I know what, you've, what I've been a, a part of. And I know that you're, I know that I don't have a lot of hope. You know what? That's the beginning of something that's, that's incredible. It's because people who come to Jesus cannot come to him. And say, you know what, I haven't done anything wrong. The people who can really celebrate Jesus are the people who look at this verse in chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The only way that you can really celebrate Jesus is if you acknowledge why Jesus is even there. That Jesus came to save sinners. And not just pristine people like, oh, you know, I, I really need to stop gossiping. I need, you know, I, you know I, 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 could, I, could, I could do a little more to serve. I could do, no. He came to save sinners. They're not even getting a lump of coal, all right? They're not getting anything. That type of sinner. But Jesus is the one who prides himself in saying, if you're really going to understand who I am and why I came, what you have to understand is that I came to save people who know that they are sinners. I came to save people that know that they have serious issues. I came to save people who, who say to me, like, I'm, I'm somebody who's broken I have serious brokenness in my life, and, and I know that when I look at my life right now, that like I see things that are not aligned with what God would want me to do. I see that um, in the midst of my relationships, like I have some things that are going wrong. I see in the midst of my business, I see in the midst of all of the things that are taking place, and I see that, that I have stuff that's wrong. You got to understand something. That when God sees you, when he sees, when he sees what, you, what you're doing and how you are, yes, he recognizes it as sin. But what he has for you is grace. What he has for you is grace. He wants to clothe you, not just with the skins of an animal, but he wants to clothe you. He wants to give you new clothing that is clean. You've soiled your garments. That's okay. He wants to give you new clothing. You've, you've been somebody who's never really been a lover of God. You've always been uh, against him. That's okay. He gives you new clothes. This is the Jesus that's lying in a manger and then ultimately goes to the cross. It's all by God's plan. And that plan is intricately involved with saving people who know that they are sinners, that they don't have what it takes to save themselves, and that they need Jesus. 
And so what the people of the Old Testament are doing, the people in the, the beginning of the Bible, what they're doing is that they're looking forward and they're saying, where is this offspring? Where is this one who's coming? Where is this person that's going to save us from our sins? Why are these two guys upset on the road to Emmaus? Because they thought he was the one, but they missed it. They missed it. And Jesus explained to them, no, the whole story comes together and it comes together in me. I've come to save you from your sins. I went to the cross. It had to happen this way. This is what I planned. Are you somebody who's received Jesus in that way? Are you somebody who's been a Christian for many years and who perhaps comes to Christmas and there really is no recognition of the Savior lying in a manger who's the Savior of the world? that he's been intricately involved with all things from the beginning? Or have you forgotten that? You don't really know who you serve? Because I can tell you this. The people that serve Jesus for 70 years are not people who do this by their own will. People who look at their clothing and, and they say, it doesn't matter what I'm, what I'm wearing. I'm here to serve Jesus. The people that do that the people that say, I'm going to leave my home, I'm going to leave my family like God asked Abraham to do, the people that say that I'm going to leave everything and I'm going to give everything from those people are people who say, I've been saved of much. I've been brought to a new relationship with God and he walks in the cool of the day with me. And we have conversation and we have life-filled uh, intimacy between God and myself. You were created for intimacy with God. Won't you engage with him? How do you do that? Repentance and faith. You acknowledge what Jesus says, I came to save sinners. You say, you know what, I am a sinner. This is, this is who I am. This is what I've got. This is what's going on in my life. It's, that's, that's repentance, but then faith is this, is to say, you know what, God? I'm gonna follow you, I'm gonna be loyal to you, I'm gonna walk with you even when it's difficult. I'm gonna walk with you even though you're asking me to give up my sin, to give up my sinful lifestyle, to give up the things that are going on in my life. You're asking me and this, the person who has faith is somebody who says, I'm not only going to say that, to say that I believe in God, which really isn't faith. To say that you believe in God, that doesn't show faith. Faith is the exercise of obedience in your life that says, I'm trusting you to the point of I'm going to obey. I'm trusting you, not, not that I can be perfect. It's not perfection, it's the direction of my obedience. It's saying, God, I trust you in these things, that my life should not be ordered in these ways, but it should be ordered in these ways. I'm going to walk with you in this. I'm going to trust you in these things. I'm going to obey you when you say. I'm going to walk with your people. I'm going to enjoy uh, fellowship with you by being a, a part of your word. This is what it means to be a believer. Just because you believe that the virgin birth took place doesn't save you. What saves you is this, is looking to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you're the only one that's made it possible 
for me to receive grace. And it is in and through that grace that I walk. And I say, because I'm aware of my sin, now I can walk with you in repentance and faith, trusting you that what you say is true. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's Jesus going to the cross and him dying a bloody death. Not coming as some great military victory, but overcoming Satan's sin and death through his own death, through his own sacrifice and subsequent resurrection. Let's remember what Christmas really is today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for, for your, your gospel. We thank, thank you for the truth of, that you bring to our lives. We thank you that, that you are an incredible. God, I'm... I'm uh, I'm so thankful for these stories in the Old Testament that show us um, just your grace and your mercy. You, you are just and you have justice and you have righteous anger towards sin, but God, you are gracious towards those that love you, that have faith in you, that trust you, that want to walk with you. God, you've clothed us with righteousness as a result of your gospel. And Lord, we're so thankful for that. So Lord, this morning I pray for those that came in with, um, with maybe a weak faith, maybe a limited faith. Lord, I pray for those that, um, that maybe came in here and, and who have never really expressed faith in you, never expressed the desire to walk with you. Lord, I pray that they would see that you save first and then you bring us to a place where we begin to walk with you. That you're not, your requirement isn't our perfection. Your requirement is perfection, but you're the one that gives us that so that we can walk with you and begin to see our lives change. Lord, I pray that we would see that. I pray that those that are here this morning that are aware of sin, that are aware of uh, where their life is, Lord, I, I pray that they would just have a deep sense of your grace and your mercy. Lord, for those that are not aware of their own sins, Lord, I pray for your, I pray that you'd humble us. Humble us. Bring about the realization that we need you, that we need this Jesus. We need what you've done for us. In Jesus' name.